I'm going to try to be shorter tonight. I don't know if you guys have noticed. I've been running kind of long lately. Um, last, <laughs> yeah, we didn't notice at all. So so uh, engaging. And no, um, last last week, um, uh, Amy actually texted me after service to apologize for yawning once. Like right, I I just happened to look at her right when she had a big yawn and she felt terrible. And I was, and so I, I'm. <laughs> I'm willing to say if your pastor goes for a, an hour and five minutes, I went for an hour and five minutes last week, you have the right to yawn. You can yawn all you want. Like there's a cutoff point where it's like, you know what, now we can just lay over and go to sleep if we want. There's no more rules. Um, so I'm going to try to be shorter. Um, we're in the discourses of Matthew. So, so the sermons that Jesus preaches in Matthew. Um, we spent eight weeks in the Sermon on the Mount, kind of in selfie mode. We talked about that. We spent eight weeks looking at ourselves, digging into our own hearts, kind of inwardly focused, talking about how the gospel goes in and works on our inner parts, um, on the inside of us. And then two weeks ago, we got into the missional discourse where Jesus sends out his disciples to go. He gives them power and a calling and he sends them out um, to go. So we talked about flipping the camera around. We're front-facing camera now. Everything's outward. We're no longer in selfie mode. Now we're talking about going and doing the will of God. Um, and we talked about how he gave them a map. Um, he told them exactly where they were supposed to go and where they weren't supposed to go. He kind of narrowed their focus. Um, he gave them a message. It was a kingdom message. Go forth saying the kingdom of God is at hand. Um, he gave them the methods they were supposed to do it, primarily that they were supposed to take on stuff that was too big for them. They weren't supposed to plan up first, store up first, make sure they had plenty of stuff to get it all done and then go. They were just supposed to go and tackle things that were God-sized. He gave them a mob to go with. That's the one I added on the spot. It wasn't actually in my notes. That he sent them out together um, to do it all together, and uh, that they no one went alone. They went as a as a unit. It was kind of the birth of the church. They did things together. We we minister in teams here, which is why I mean even the sermon is a team effort. Which is why when I say something good, you guys say Amen. We do this all the time, right? It's, yeah, there we go. Yeah, see, it's a team effort. You, I do my part, you do your part. We work together to make this awesome. So, and then he gave them their muscle. This was the uh, the cool part where he said, um, uh, "Yeah, if you weren't here for this message, this was I announced it beforehand. This was my message with cheese on it. Like we, you know, I did one of those cheesy messages where I made sure everything started with M. I don't usually do that, um, but that one just kind of jumped off the page, so we did it." Um, but he sent them out with power. And he said, you're going to raise the dead. You're going to heal the sick. You're going to uh, d- deliver the captive. You're going to do all these amazing things. And he kind of left right there that week. And we were like, you know, sign me up. That sounds amazing, you know, to do that. And you're almost waiting for the other shoe to fall, which happened last week. Where he says, oh, yes. And while you're out, um, you're also going to be persecuted. There's going to be great persecution. <laughs> I forgot to write my title down. Um, I went back and forth on the title of this one. I changed it 37 times. It's supposed to be the frame up. So now, now you know. Um, so Jesus, uh, I also found out that I forgot to do the song slides for one of the songs. But it's I like everybody knows those songs, so I could hear you singing along with me. So that was awesome. Um, yeah, they told me when I went back to get a drink, they're like, dude, you had the wrong song. And then, I, you know. Don't tell somebody that when they got to go sing one more song, because then I'm like all nervous and, oh man, I messed up. Um, so anyway, back on track. Uh, so we gave them, we talked about getting one of those emergency alerts when a thunderstorm is coming, you know, and Jesus kind of does that. He's like, hey, 
Um, just so you know, when you go out, bad things are going to happen. Like it, you're going to get uh, you're going to get persecuted. You're going to get beat up. People are going to arrest you, and they're going to drag you um, in front of leaders. And then he kind of says, which is awesome, because while you're there, you can preach to the to the to the people who arrested you. And uh, and and if you don't get arrested, he said, run, run to the next city. Oh, and when you run, take the gospel with you there too. And and he kind of laid out this plan whereby there's purpose no matter what happens. If the worst happens, there's a purpose and there's a reason why the worst happens. If you get away and everything is good, there's a purpose you got away and everything is good. He, and, and so we kind of left knowing that everything we go through has purpose, which is awesome. Um, because he, he sent them out. We've been talking about this several times. He sent them out with this like subversive message. We talked about this a little bit. You know, to us, we talk about the kingdom like it's no big deal. It's the kingdom of God. It's the kingdom of God. It's just something we talk about. But this was language, this was tough language back then. We talked about going to a Middle Eastern country right now and saying, I'm here to establish the kingdom of America. You wouldn't last long. And that's what it would have sounded like to them, like to go and say, hey, we've got a new king and he's taking over. We're we're here to advance a new kingdom. It would have been very subversive. And and it's kind of fun because one of the things that kind of jumped out at me this week as I was... um, Thinking back on that was the way Jesus subverts authority. And this, and this story popped up where I was actually reading and this one came up and it, it felt like a good example of the man with the withered hand. You guys remember this story? Jesus goes into the temple on the Sabbath. There's a man with a withered hand and everybody was watching Jesus to see if he would heal on the Sabbath and, and it, and it frustrated him. And so he, he said to the, oh man, I forgot to plug my computer. It's going to do that the whole time. Um, so he said to them, Kind of wave at me when it turns off again. Uh, he said, uh, he asked me, he said, hey, what do you guys think? You think it's good to heal on the Sabbath or not? Blah, blah, blah. And then this whole thing, he told the man, stretch out your hand. And the man's healed. And it upset everybody because you're not supposed to do work on the Sabbath. And something I saw this week that I'd never seen before in that passage is this is a withered hand. Right? There is no emergency here. Jesus easily could have waited till Monday. This is not life-threatening, right? He easily could have waited till the next day to do this healing, but he doesn't. He picks this, this moment to do good that challenged the system that was currently there. And don't think this was an accident. Don't think that, like, I've never seen that before. I'm always like, of course you heal on the Sabbath. Who wouldn't heal, blah, blah, blah. But he easily could have both worked within their system and done a healing, this guy wasn't dying. The way they tell the story, the hand had been withered for a long time. So Jesus purposely, what's fun is Jesus is being subversive and doing good at the same time. A lot of times we think subversive is aggressive and like where we, we it's combative and we fight. Like we, I used to be really into apologetics, you know, where you defend your faith, where you, you argue against people who don't believe you so that you can kind of defend your faith. And then one day I, I was doing this and I was like, defend your faith, like the, the combative, even the language feels unloving. Like I'm ready to fight for my faith. Like, and, and so I quit doing it. I was like, you know what? I'd rather just love people and not, you know, and that, and kind of undermine the system with love. That's what Jesus does in that story. He like, he totally threatens their entire system of Sabbath and the way they're using it to control people by doing something awesome for somebody. And that's the way the kingdom works. It does subversive acts of kindness and so, anyway, that jumped out of me today. I thought I'd share it. So, we found out that, uh, that everything we go through has purpose last week. And I think that's important. 
And the way, the way I felt like God kind of spoke it to me was, um, we can handle a whole lot of what if we have the right why, right? If we, like, could we get caught up in the what? The what is happening to us. All the, the stuff in our life and we get so tangled up on the what and usually it feels overwhelming because we have no why. And I think the power that Jesus gave them when he told them if you get arrested, it's for the gospel. If you don't get arrested, it's for the gospel. Is he gave them an awesome why. If you have a why, I think most of us can endure a whole lot of what if we have a good why. If we have the right why. We understand that we are on mission with God. Suddenly, the what gets easy because we have the right why. So we ended last week with this thought that after telling the disciples that all this terrible stuff was going to happen to them, that it was going to be brutal, they were going to be beaten, they were going to be arrested, their own family was going to turn against them, they all still signed up. They all still said, I'm in. And we were left with this idea of how compelling must Jesus have been that even in light of all of this bad news, they still said, totally worth it. Totally worth it to go through all of that if I get to be with Jesus. If being on mission with Jesus means all that. So we got to see some of the value of Jesus in the, in, in the downside of mission. Anyway, we're going to be in a similar vein tonight uh, because Jesus kind of stayed um, close to this. Uh, and we're going to set off with kind of a rhythm. He says... Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. And whatever you hear in the ear, preach on the housetop. This is the rhythm of mission. Mission has a rhythm to it. I don't know if you guys have noticed, but a lot of times when we're doing our invocation prayer, I talk about being breathed in and breathed out. They were breathed into the sacred presence of God and then we're breathed out into the world to do ministry. We're sent forth in mission. Then we're breathed back in and we're breathed back out. That It creates this rhythm whereby he tells us stuff in the dark and then sends us out to speak it in the light. He whispers stuff in our ear and then sends us out to preach it from the housetop. So there's a, there's a give and take kind of rhythm to God. Every week we're breathed in and we're breathed out. One week uh, I, I preached a, a sermon and then Nate Beal um, actually called me that week to say, dude, I, I totally re-preached your sermon. He's like, I went to work and like uh, there was a situation and, I, and he was excited and I was, I was cutting uh, bushes when he called me. And I was excited and I was, we were on the phone, both having like church on the phone. But he came in and got filled up with a sermon and he went out and like preached it from the housetops. And he was like, I've never done that before. I've never like remembered every word someone said before because I was quoting scripture. I've never quoted scripture in my life. And he's like, blah, blah, blah. And he was stoked and I was stoked. And by the time, like we were shouting hallelujahs on, on, over the phone by the time we were done. And that's the way it's supposed to work. We get breathed in. We get filled up. He gives us something. And that's, I mean, I hope that happens. If, if ever you're out in the world and something from one of my sermons comes up, Use it. You don't even have to quote me. You don't even have to cite me. Just say it's yours. I don't even care. Like, that's what I want. Like, that's, that's the dream is that God would give us a word that isn't like a Sunday night word. It's like a Tuesday word. It's like a Thursday word. Like, I want, <laughs> I want preaching to be like Taco Bell. Like, it comes up on you later. You know? <laughs> so, so we get filled up. And then we give out. It's a rhythm that always has to be there.
Which leaves you the question is if you're not receiving, what are you going to give? If you're not getting filled up, what do you have to speak in the light? What do you have to preach from the housetop? You can't draw water from an empty well. I don't know if you guys know this. My house isn't hooked up to city water. So we actually have to drive to a city water coin-op thing, fill it up, come home and dump that into, our, into these big tanks in our house so we can have water. And so I'd say once a week we run completely out of water and someone has to go and run and get water. So we are very acutely aware of what it's like to try to give something you don't have. Like every single week it happens to us. The well is empty. I think that happens to us all the time in life. You know, we go out and somebody, and there's no worse feeling, there's no worse feeling than when you go in and somebody is like sharing their hurts and their pains and their heart and their bondage with you and you want to help and suddenly you realize I'm on empty. Like you turn the tap on and there's nothing there and you're like, I can tell I got nothing to give right now. I'm dry. And so we have to stay filled up. We have to stay, we got to make sure we're in the dark with him and that he's whispering in our ear. Our job is to stay receptive. His job is to talk. We do that a lot of ways. We stay in the word, of course. We all know this. We stay in community. Church is a big one. I know I'm preaching to the people who showed up tonight, so that's, you know, need to preach to everybody else. But church, you know, we come, we get filled up with, with one another's company, with community, with worship and prayer and the word. We get filled up and then we can go out. Books, music, life metaphors. Part of it's just staying receptive. Just, I mean, Bill texted me this week. I guess Bill and Amy are my examples for the week. Bill texted me this week, sent me a picture of Aviva uh, tracing the letter B on, uh, on, on a little notebook thing. He's doing this thing, and he snapped a picture and sent it to me and said, First Peter 121. Actually, he got the reference wrong, and then we fixed it. But it goes First Peter 121. And I looked it up. It said, For... Uh, to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his footsteps. So as, as she's following the little dotted lines of a bee, God is speaking to Bill, the scripture. First Peter said, like, this is just like us following in Jesus' footsteps. It's just a, we just trace the bee that he's already laid out for us. And Bill texts me this little mini sermon. He didn't even have to say all that. He just sent me the thing and, and I preached the sermon to myself. But, Part of it is staying open to God, staying receptive and letting the Holy Spirit, you know, speak to you in the, in the weird little things that happen on it. Judy sends me stuff all the time. She's like, hey, look, I was reading this thing. I thought this sounds just like you. I thought this would be cool. And she sends me stuff. Although I haven't got anything for a couple of weeks. I, mean, I don't think Judy's reading the Bible anymore. No. <laughs> no. Um, so we have to stay receptive. Let the Holy Spirit talk to us. And when we talk about God talking to us, a lot of people struggle with this sometimes. It's one of those things, I, I don't know if anybody have ever done Henry Blackaby's uh, Experiencing God, but he nailed it for me, where he said, when God speaks, we always know it was God, we always know what he said, and we always know what we're supposed to do about it. If you're not, if you didn't, it probably wasn't God. Because he doesn't usually speak audibly, he speaks way too loud for it to be audible. Like usually when God speaks, it's way louder than audible. Like if it were audible, it'd probably blow our ears out because it's, it's so compelling that we know exactly what he's saying to us and what we're supposed to do now. So we get filled up. <laughs> Nobody flagged me down. Oh, man. We get filled up and then we give. We shout it from the housetops. 
what we hear in our ear, we, we say out loud. We say it when we get in the dark, we say it out loud. And a lot of people don't like this because they feel like faith is a private thing. My faith is a private thing. My faith is very private to me, which I would, I would argue is impossible. I think our faith is never private. I think your faith is absolutely evident in the way you treat people. I think your faith is absolutely evident in the way we do our jobs. I'm going to preach tonight. You guys know the difference between teaching and preaching? There's not a whole lot to teach in this passage, um, so I'm going to preach, which usually means I'm telling you what to do with your life. That's kind of the difference. Like pre- Teaching is, is what I'm telling you what the passage says. Preaching is what I'm telling you what to do with your life. So this is a preaching night, so just kind of buckle in because it's going to be like this the whole time. But, um, but I think our faith shows up in whatever we do. It shows up in the way we do our jobs. It shows up in the way we raise our kids. It shows up in the way... We drive and rush our traffic. Hello. Is Elijah in the room? No. Our faith is very evident. It's never a private thing. It, it absolutely shapes the way we do what we do. And so we might as well own that and start sharing it with people and start letting people know. Preach it from the housetops. So after telling them, uh, you know, what to say. What you say is what I give you. Jesus spends the rest of this pericope um, dealing with maybe the single hugest issue in the Scripture. And he's hit on it several times in his discourses already. And that's fear. He says, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear Him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. So I spent some time with this word this week. And I don't want to go deep into the psychology because I don't want to spend another hour and five minutes. Um, but we have these things called primary emotions. Um, that they say the majority of the emotions we have are kind of built on these primary ones. And they kind of mix and blend to, to, to come out in the ways that we see emotions come out. Even the way we feel them generally. And it used to be eight and then... They did some studies and narrowed it down to six. And then some psychologists say there's only five. And the most recent study said there's really only four core foundational emotions that mix and blend and come out a bunch of different ways. But no matter whether you take eight, six, five, or four, fear is always one of them. Fear is a fundamental human emotion. It's absolutely core to who we are. In fact, evolutionary biologists, if you... you, or an evolutionist, they would say that we are actually wired for fear. That because our kind of most ancient ancestors, those who weren't fearful, got eaten. And so the fearful had kids and passed on their kind of fearful tendencies. And so the most fearful were the ones who probably hid from the monsters from the wild animals and lived long enough to be our progenitors. And so they would say that we're, we're biologically uh, engineered for fear through, you know, our predecessors. But fear seems to be this fundamental part of who we are. It's, it always seems to be there. And we talked about, we've talked several times kind of in this study about the inadequacy of the law of a command to deal with fear. You can't, command somebody not to fear if they're in a in a fear moment if they're afraid you can't say stop being afraid like it doesn't it doesn't ever work you can't make somebody not be afraid yet the bible continually tells us not to fear we talked last week that this is the most frequent command in all of scripture do not fear out of every other command this one shows up most often i grabbed a handful of them just randomly 
Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my right hand. But now, thus says the Lord, O, uh, who created you, O Jacob, and formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. He said, O man, greatly beloved, fear not. Peace be to you. Be strong. Yes, be strong. Fear not, O land. Be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done marvelous things. And he answered, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. This is one of my favorite ones. There was a time when uh, one of the uh, prophets was surrounded by enemies and his his disciple was terrified and he was like, we got to go, we got to run, we got to get there, surrounded us. And he was like, they're fine, we're fine. And he was like, are you kidding me? They're everywhere. Like they've got us completely locked in and blah, blah, blah. And he tells them, go out and look again. And he goes out and look again, nothing. Comes back, says, there's still the enemies. And he goes, go out and look again, nothing. Third time he's like, he prays. He said, God, please open his eyes. He goes out and he looks around and he sees all the hosts of heaven surrounding the enemy. Like God, had, and for some reason, God just gave him the spiritual sight so he could see. And then the prophet is like, see, the, those who are with us are far more than those who are against us, which I absolutely love because no matter how bad the world gets, those who are for us are always more than those who are against us. We're always on the winning side. Anyway, that was for free. Then he answered and said, fear not for those... Oh, no, we got that one. It's worth reading twice, though, but I won't. Look, the Lord said, uh, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go and possess it as the Lord... God of your fathers has spoken to you. Do not fear nor be discouraged. I got a whole list. I'm going to skip them. But the Bible is full of these. This seems to be one of the main things the Bible wants us to do is, is don't fear. And we talked last week how fear is kind of the opposite of faith. When we live in fear, it usually means we're not putting our faith in God. And we're like, God, but that's a bad part of town. I can't, I can't minister there. God, those are my babies. I can't, I have to protect them. God, what the doctor said is bad. It's bad news. I'm not strong enough to do what you're calling me to do. The money's just not there to pay the bills. They're shooting people for no reason. There's a lot to fear. And yet the Bible's constantly telling us, do not be afraid. Don't live that way. We can't live in fear. Now, I could spend a lot of time on this, but this is, because this is, it really is one of the fundamental parts of the whole scripture. And we're going to bump into it a lot. That's another reason why we don't really have to dig in, because this is going to come up in a lot of Jesus' teaching. This seems to be one of his hot buttons. But, for tonight, I want to do something considerably more serious than that. Have you guys seen these? I mean, pretty much everybody has, I think where you can take a picture and add all the the goofy stuff. Yeah, my younger kids love these. My older kids, not so much. Every time I send them one, they're like, Dad, seriously. Yeah. Some weird facial recognition software that the second it like centers your face in there, it, it puts all that on there. It, it kind of overlays it. And I bring this up because I feel like this is kind of what Jesus does in this passage. This is kind of what happens. Because if you'll notice... Well, you can't really notice, but I can tell you the source material doesn't change in this whole thing. The source material is the same. I don't look like any of those. It's, so there's nothing that's real. <laughs> Jennifer's like, I don't know. <laughs> um, the bunny one's pretty close. No, the, the source material is the same. The fundamental object of the photo has not changed. It's just got a filter over it. 
And I feel like that's what Jesus does. Does anybody know what the phrase horror vacui means? No, me, I, me neither, but I just want to sound smart. It, it's, the, it's the Latin way of saying nature abhors a vacuum. Anybody ever heard that one? Nature abhors a void. Nature does not like vacuums. So nature won't, oh, it's, a, it's, it's a, one of the laws of physics, one of the laws of thermodynamics, that nature doesn't allow for nothingness. It's actually being challenged now, but it basically means if you try to suck something out, it's how we created vacuums. You suck all the air out of a tank, put a hole on the other side, and it will suck air back in because we can't have nothingness. We don't, the world doesn't allow for a vacuum, for a nothingness. It seems like when God made something out of nothing, ex nihilo, out of nothing, he didn't just make it out of nothing. He like banished the nothing. He got rid of the nothing and filled it up with something so that there can now not be nothingness. And so this is a major principle in the scripture. We don't always see it because it's, it's kind of hidden. But um, Jesus said, he's like, you got to be careful if you cast a demon out of a man and nothing else fills up. Nature abhors a vacuum and it's going to suck in seven more just like him, you know, and he's going to come back and find the thing empty and swept up, blah, blah, blah. So you have to, you, you can't leave a vacuum. Paul does this. Paul doesn't say, hey, do not think bad thoughts. Don't do that. Don't think bad thoughts. And we think, we feel like that's something he said. But if I were to tell you to close your eyes and whatever you do, don't think of a pink elephant, what's the first thing to pop into your head? Usually a pink elephant, right? Unless you know the trick and then you're like, green elephant, green elephant, green elephant, green elephant, or something. But, you have to put something up. So what Paul does, instead of saying, don't think bad thoughts, he says, whatever is lovely, whatever is just, whatever is righteous, whatever is pure, whatever is holy, think on these things. Fill up with those things because nature abhors a vacuum. You can't just not think something. Then all kinds of things will come hammering in. So he says, fill up your thoughts with these good things so there won't be any room for the other things. So nature abhors a vacuum. I think this is what uh, this is what Jesus is hitting on here because if if fear is a fundamental um, human emotion, then he knows he can't just tell us not to fear. He can't just tell us to eliminate all fear from our lives. So what does he do? He says, "Don't fear those guys. Fear God." He shifts the fear. Fill up on fear of God and you won't have this other fear. You won't have room to fear this other stuff. He reframes it. So it's like the fear is still there. He just repositions uh, it. He gives us a new frame for the fear. And this kind of changes everything. If we're going to fear... We should fear disappointing God. If we're going to fear, we should fear not fulfilling the will of God in our life. If we're going to fear, we should fear not advancing the kingdom of God in our circle of influence. If we're going to fear something, don't fear the bad things that can happen. That's all meaningless. Fear God. That's what he does. That's what Jesus does here. He shifts the fear. And here's what's amazing about the way he does this is the source material doesn't change. Jesus never says, if you do this, then none of this bad stuff that I told you about is actually going to happen. If you 
fear God, <laughs> like we really need that anyway. If, if, you, if you fear God, then none of this persecution is actually going to happen. If you fear God, then everything's going to go smooth. If you fear God, then everything will be great. You'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise. None of the source material changed. It's still the same circumstance that was there before. It just feels totally different because we're fearing God. The doctor's report might still be bad. You still got bills. You still got kids trying to destroy your life. You still got jobs. But a perspective change can make all the difference. It can make all the difference. We had this happen when Joshua, my fourth son, was in the hospital. He was super sick. They didn't know why. And they thought it might even be communicable. They were coming in in hazmat suits. We were in a normal room in the hospital. Every doctor in the hospital came to look at him. We were the center of the universe. We were doing interviews with the CDC. They were asking us a billion questions. They were sticking needles in him. No idea what's going on. He was getting sicker and sicker and sicker. And then they got to where he hadn't crashed yet, but he was going in such a direction that they were pretty sure he was going to crash. And when he crashed, they wanted him in a place that could handle that kind of crash. So they moved us to ICU. And so I'm in ICU with him now. And I'm down there, and you're not allowed to sleep in the ICU at Children's Mercy, so they have a little sleeping room just out of ICU. And it was middle of the night, so I go into that sleeping room, and there's parents in there, and it was the heaviest, most oppressive, scared, sad place I've ever been. And so I couldn't stay. I had to leave. So I went back to his room, and I started, I just paced around in his room. And on my walk to the parents' room and back, I saw sick kids. Like, I saw kids with cancer. I saw a a hydrocephalic kid who was like a baby with a head like this big, had hydrocephalus in in a bed and a little baby's body and this big giant head. I saw kids that were, had just had open heart surgery. And they stuck us in a corner of ICU and didn't look at us all night. And just because down there, Joshua was one of the healthy kids. Up top, we were the center of the universe. Like everybody, and I was like grumpy at parents whose kids had a broken arm. Like, yeah, your kid just got a broken arm. I don't even know what's wrong with my kid. Like, I just want, like I want, we wanted answers. They put us down there and actually they had finally figured out what was going on, but now it was a race. What's going to, what's going to win the medicine or the disease or the sickness. And so they don't, so we're still hanging, but at least we know what it is. And I get down there and I started walking the ward back and forth, praying for all these babies. Like nothing in the world would have made me think to pray for somebody else upstairs because my kid was the center of the universe. Down there, he was small potatoes. So I started walking and I would stop at each room and I would pray for these babies, most of which I knew were going to die. And I went in the parents' room and I prayed for their parents. And, and nothing had changed. Joshua was just as sick. All that changed was the perspective. I was in a spot where I was seeing things completely different. And I realized, number one, the world does not revolve around me. There's a whole room full of desperate moms and dads out there that need prayer too. And they need somebody to love on them too. And nothing, the, the, the source material is identical, but the perspective changed, which can change absolutely everything. And we're all masters of this. We all do this all the time, right? In social media, we don't put our real life on there, right? We frame it up just right. We, we post the stuff so people think we're cool and smart and, and, you know, 
have everything just right. Our kids are well behaved. Look at my kids doing cool things. You know, we don't show them tearing out, you know, tearing up the whole house. I found this picture. This is kind of fun. I grabbed a British guy so that I didn't have to pick on any of our politicians. Giving a speech, right? Which is pretty cool. Um, and then somebody leaked extra photos from this uh, political event. And so that's from the side. And uh, which is still a pretty decent crowd, which is fun. But notice the bus. Keep your eye on the bus. <laughs> now, given this room, why are there people standing behind him? <laughs> like, they could have gotten seats and sat in front of him and heard the speech, right? So it leaves the question, why do you need people behind you? And I'll tell you why. For that picture. That's the whole reason. I'm sure he gave the speech. I'm sure he shared his platform. I'm sure it was a legit deal. But if you want to frame it up just right and send a message, if you want to see it just right, you've got to stand some people behind him who are probably sitting there going, I wish I could see his face. I don't know why they put me back here. This is... Probably got some of the ear going, sir, could you hold your sign a little higher? I got a little video here. This is a really neat, I thought this was fun. I'm going to see if I can, we're going to see if this works. I have no idea. Our internet here is so funny. Watch it. It's all in how you frame it, right? Was that awesome? Now I want to go back and watch all the movies and actually count real heads in the scenes. I bet it's all five people. Yeah. Now this is hard to do sometimes when we're being persecuted, when the devil's attacking us, when the money's tight, when we find out that our kids are not actually human, but they're terrorists who have come to ruin our lives. Can you tell what's going on in my house right now? (laughs) When we're confronted with our own weaknesses, when life is just hard, we have two ways we can handle it. We can... Oops. Oh, man, now I did it. I don't even... I'm going to have to do it this way, I think. We can look at it this way and feel like we're in a room just crowded with problems. They're everywhere. They're surrounding us. There's trials on top of trials. Every turn. Packed with struggles. And the only way to respond to that room is with fear. What am I going to do? There's just so much piling up on me right now. Or... We can change perspectives and say, I've got some stuff. I've got some issues. I've got some things to work on. Nothing me and God can't handle. 
God can totally empower me to work on this stuff. And here's the magic. The room is the same. That's the same room. Faith is not denial. That's something we have to get right off of that. Faith is not denial. It's not putting on blinders. If anything, faith is, is actually seeing the truth. Faith is more true than most of our truths. Because that's the real room. That's the, that's the real room. Faith isn't denying what's there. That's not the real room. That's a setup. That's Satan taking our issues and, and presenting it to us in a way that it looks like a certain thing, but that's a setup. That's not real. Faith sees the room the way it really is. Faith says, okay, God, five issues that I can't write. Five things I got to work on. I can handle that. We can do that. This is not a, a room packed full of problems. This is me and you against a few issues. Faith is never denial. I had a, I had a good friend recently go through hell, basically. And uh, super stressful, a lot going on. And he had a point where God did this, like change perspectives. And, and, and he did it with a phrase. He said, why are you working so hard to protect a sandcastle? And, and it, was, it was like this. It was like, shh, like the room turned. Oh, I see better now. And, and it was just a word from God to say, this is, this is all. And when he was telling me about it, he just kept going back to that phrase. It's a sandcastle. I've been going crazy. I've been going through hell for a sandcastle. Like I've been, I've been fighting and struggling for a sandcastle. Like just trying to save something that's, that's an illusion, ultimately, and, and risking truly valuable things for a sandcastle. Ecclesiastes does this. That whole book one of my favorite books. Solomon goes through... Um, goes through all the stuff that he tried to find meaning in life. And he's like, it's all vanity. I tried money. I tried power. I tried work. I tried sex. I tried everything. And I tried pleasure. And it's all meaningless. Vanity, vanity, chasing after the wind. He gets to the end of the book and he's like, come to this conclusion. Fear God. Keep his commandments for this is the entirety of man. After trying everything. Fear God. Same thing Jesus said. Don't fear all that other stuff. Don't get caught up in all that other stuff. Fear God. And the Bible's full of this reality. The 12 spies, they, go into, they, they had just watched God decimate the greatest kingdom on earth. They go into the wilderness, have a great worship time at the mountain. They go over, they send in some spies in the promised land. The spies come back and say, that is the most awesome land you'll ever see, flowing with milk and honey, grapes the size of watermelons. It's incredible. Like, places is awesome. They're like, can we take it? <laughs> no. Those people were huge. We're like grasshoppers in their sight. Ten of them said, we can't do it. Totally perspective. So they wander for 40 years. And, and then the next time, when I think this is awesome, the next time when Joshua sends in spies, he sent two. Moses sent in 12. Ten came back. Only two came back with a positive report. So Joshua sends in two. Like, <laughs> I've seen how this goes. Too many people sends in two spies. They come back and say, it's, it's, it's bad, but we've got God. And so they go in and take it. 
David and Goliath. David saw the same giant everybody else saw. Nothing had changed. His brothers saw the same giant in the same field and hid behind rocks. David goes in and goes, who, who is this Philistine talking about my God like that? And David took him. So how do we respond to this? <clears throat> Perspective can change everything. I believe this. I think it saved my marriage. I went through a point where I think perspective totally, if it didn't save it, it totally made it more smooth. One simple truth. I chose to believe that my wife loves me. That sounds rudimentary, and it is in like a theological kind of way of, you know, of course she loves me, but in like a practical everyday way, it wasn't, fun. I mean, it, was, it was a huge shift. Because my wife sometimes says mean things to me. Right? Everybody's going to feel bad for the hairy giant, right? No. She, she does. My wife has a temper. She's Irish. My wife has Irish. That's what we do in our house. We don't, we don't confront our, our um, like weaknesses. We just we put a, 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 a tag on it. So she's Irish. She's not, she doesn't have a temper. She's Irish. You know, I'm not like coolly judgmental and overly analytical with a high propensity for beer. I'm German. So that's what we do. Like I don't, I don't want to be known as those other things. I'm German. So, so every now and then we'll say, "Mom's Irish is, is is up," and so, and I used to get real defensive when she would get, you know, her temper would come out and she'd say something mean, and I would want to fight against it, and I'd be one of like, "No, like that's not true. I didn't do that." And we would have these huge knockdown, dragout fights, and then I had a perspective change one day. And it was as simple as, she loves me. I'm pretty sure she loves me. She cooks for me. She takes care of me. She makes me take my vitamins because she wants me to hang around a little longer. And, and she does everything. She tries to get me to wear my seatbelt. Usually fails. But she's like, this is the woman who loves me. So if she just said something mean, maybe she's got some stuff going on. Maybe it's not all about me. Maybe I can trust her love enough to go, maybe there's a bigger thing happening here. And so I can respond with compassion and go, um, that's not you, so what's going on? Why are you hurting? And she, I've just got a lot going on. And then she can tell me what's going on with her. Rather than making it all about me and what was just said to me and what was just like hurtful to me, I can trust her love and go, now, whatever that was, I know she actually loves me a lot. And so I'm not, so I'm going to find out, and, and so I can actually respond to persecution with compassion because I know that that had to be fueled by some pain or something going on in her world or something going on, you know, in her heart. And I don't have to be crazy defensive and make a big fight. And I, I'm not kidding. Like, our lives have gotten so much better with that one subtle little change. I said the same thing when we started, when we started talking about this church and we were talking about what we wanted for elders. And I was like, I want two things. Somebody who will confront me and somebody who loves me. So that when somebody confronts me, I can go, I know they love me. 
And so I know this is coming from a place of love. Like, I don't want a yes, man. I don't want somebody to love me so much they're going to let me do whatever I want. But I also didn't want um, somebody where when they say something, I'm like, you are always on my case. I don't know if this is coming from a good place or if you just don't like me. Like, I didn't even want to have to have that talk. If I sit across from the table with somebody who I know loves me, then no matter how harsh they are with me, I can go, I know this is coming from a place of love, so I probably got some issue in me that I need to deal with that they would confront me like this. I bring this up because the beauty of what Jesus is telling us is he asks us to shift our fear in the midst of, in the midst of this crazy world we live in. He asks us to shift our fear from life to God. And if we're doing that, if the only thing, I mean, FDR, I think, had it wrong. I think the only thing we have to fear is God. Like, I think that's what he should have said. And if the only thing we have to fear sent his son for us to die on a cross because he loved us so much, if the only thing there is to fear is a being who has gone, we don't need it, who has gone to every length possible to demonstrate his love for us. If Jesus is saying, don't fear any of that, fear God, and we get confused about that word because we put such a negative connotation on it, but make it as ugly as you want to make it. And still, you are fearing a being who has done everything in his power to love you. He sent His Son to die for us. He gave us the Holy Spirit to empower and comfort us and convict us. Like He's done everything to love us. That's who we want to fear. And then we find out we've got nothing to fear. Why would we walk in fear when the only thing that makes any sense to fear loves us completely? That simple perspective change can change everything. So Jesus says it's silly to, silly, silly, silly to fear men. All they can do is kill you. That means nothing in light of resurrection. And the only person who can do you real harm loves you, is absolutely crazy about you. I think that would change the way we live. So as we go to the table tonight, I pray that we would be that we would be uh, maybe confronted with God's love uh, in this bread and in this cup. That maybe we would understand that the only um, being alive that is worth fearing has broken his body for us because he loves us that much. He's poured out his blood for us because he loves us that much. So that maybe we won't live in fear.